I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings are available in the show description. Welcome back to part two of that podcast where we say goodbye to those we have lost and talk about grief and healing. I'm your host, Ramona Ali. In the first half, we heard from those who have lost loved ones this past year, and we leant into the rituals that help them through their grief. In the second half, we want to broaden our focus to look at the bigger picture. What about those people who've experienced death and mourning from the outside this past year? And what of all the other things we've lost? that we mourn in different ways. For every person who leaves us, there's a community around them that feels the impact. But how far do those ripples go? I'm a dermatologist by profession, and recently I was redeployed to the COVID frontlines. Being redeployed after nine years, having last done general medicine, was quite a daunting experience. I was one of the most senior doctors on the ward. The experience was surreal. It was very different. It was emotional and, I'd say, psychologically very draining, more than I've ever experienced before. I was experiencing deaths on a daily basis. People you'd see one day and the next day they just weren't there. And with all due respect to the people who passed away, I I think uh, we were at a stage where we were seeing so many deaths on the ward that I actually had forgotten how many I'd seen before they had passed away. There were days when I'd be sitting in the car afterwards having a little cry or just sitting there gazing into empty space trying to recover from what happened. In terms of the grieving process, It's something we've never witnessed before. We have people who've got COVID and the hospitals are completely shut to visitors. So ordinarily, if you have a loved one who is in hospital, you're able to visit, you're able to comfort them, you're able to speak to them, you can kiss them. But we had people on the ward. I mean, one gentleman in particular really sticks out in my head because I looked after him for about two weeks on the ward and I used to walk into the ward and I remember exactly the bed he was on. I'd walk in and I'd turn my head to the left every day just hoping he'd be there and this chap needed uh, the maximum amount of oxygen we could possibly give on the ward. He was a fit gentleman, you know, he's fairly elderly, probably in his early 80s, but he's the sort of man who used to go to the gym and he was independent and one day I came in, I turned to the left and he just wasn't there. You know, I was heartbroken. This man told me he was scared. He told me that he didn't want to die. 
And that was unfortunately his eventual outcome. I remember speaking to his family, his daughter, who was crying to me on the phone for about an hour. And I was there on the other side, holding back tears myself. You know, the whole pandemic has changed the way we grieve because imagine having somebody in the last stages of their life or being acutely unwell and being in pain or breathless and being alone because you can't visit for obvious reasons. For a year, we've had several waves of lockdowns. We are already in a state of psychological, emotional deficiencies. We're struggling with anxiety, with depression. We're talking about people who are previously fine from a mental health point of view. What happens when you lose a loved one and you're in lockdown? You have to grieve alone, you have to weep alone, and you have to recover alone. Already on the background of terrible mental health problems that everyone is experiencing to some extent. How do you cope with that? I can speak for myself. I still continue to be really psychologically and emotionally impacted by the whole process. I feel like in a few months I'm going to wake up with some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder because I remember the names of the people that suddenly died and people who were well, I've held their hands, I've cried with their families. I wish I could say that I was able to separate work and home. But it was very, very hard to. I think if you ask my wife, if you ask my kids, they would tell you how it affected me. You know, I've been a different person. The whole clap for the NHS to me is a bit of a farcical thing. Initially, okay, when it first happened, I can appreciate the gesture, but it just seems to be Boris Johnson's response to anything now. Anything, anything happens, just go clap for that person. Ultimately, in real world terms, it's it's absolutely pointless. It's useless. It does nothing tangible for the world. And there are still people who are suffering because of a lack of uh, support uh, for the NHS, uh, for our care workers. And that is really where it counts and where we need help. I'm from Bradford and I'm a mental health support worker. So you go out in the community and work with service users within their homes. Two service users that I used to go out and see in the community just passed away within space of two weeks of each other. And it just came to me as a really big shock when one of the other staff members informed me that they have passed away and they're no longer on my rotor. It was just scary. They went into hospital with one thing, they caught COVID-19 and they passed away. It's just, yeah, it was just really hard to try and grasp that. We'd been there, we'd been looking after them and it was just emotional. It was just difficult to see people go. I know they say, like, obviously you're supposed to keep a professional relationship, but it's difficult in care because we start to care, as you do, uh, when you're seeing someone often and you develop that relationship and you've developed that bond and they start to trust you and you start to trust them. And, it, and then when all of a sudden they've gone, it's, it's hard to think, oh, well, this person's just gone due to COVID-19 and we couldn't do anything about it. Is anyone truly untouched by what's going on around us? Or are we, to some extent, a nation of mourners, all touched by this tragedy? Eminent playwright David Edgar, who's been weathering the pandemic at home in Birmingham, tries to answer our question with numbers, not names. One death is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. This remark is attributed to Joseph Stalin who knew a thing or two about large numbers of dead people and is generally considered to contain a grain of truth. But does it? 
And if not, what does that mean in our current circumstances? I'm one of the many people who haven't had COVID. I know some people who've had it, including my son's family, and I know others who've lost relatives. But I don't know anyone who's died. I haven't had to say goodbye. So although, like everyone else, my life has been changed by the pandemic, in terms of the big story, I'm a bystander. For me, and people like me, the people who've died are numbers, not names. What am I supposed to... What should I? What do I deserve to feel? The official advice is clear. A recent BBC website piece reported an epidemic of numbness and deflation among people faced with the then remorselessly rising daily mortality figures, which could only be reinvested with meaning by thinking about the dead as individuals. I can relate to that. Last year, I read Laura Spinney's grimly prescient book, Pale Rider, about the 1918 to 19 Spanish flu. In it, she says that the flu is remembered not as a historical disaster, but as millions of discrete, private tragedies. And the book is indeed full of stories of people we've heard of whose deaths touch the heart. The poet Guillaume Apollinaire's funeral cortege blocked by armistice celebrants in the streets of Paris. The playwright Edmund Rostand eagerly travelling to the same city for the same event, dying of the flu three weeks later. The painter Egon Schiele painting a family portrait of his dead wife and never-to-be-born infant child three days before he too succumbed to the disease. But do those stories, names not numbers, divert our thoughts and feelings from the millions whose names we don't recognise in a pandemic which killed at least three times as many people as died in the First World War. Reading Pale Rider reminded me of a remarkable work of art which confronts these questions head-on. In 2003, the Birmingham-based theatre troupe Stans Caff created an installation which has been shown across the globe. Of all the people in all the world consists of statistics represented by piles of rice weighed out by performers and displayed on titled sheets of paper with each grain representing a person. The show's manual states that you can fit up to 15,000 grains, that's a quarter of a kilo, on an A4 sheet, 50,000, which is 800 grams, on an A3 sheet, and over half a million, 8.3 kilos, on a sheet of A1. The statistics regularly shown range from the four Beatles to the world's 2,825 billionaires, from the number of boys taking GCSE maths to the number of girls, roughly the same, from children in school to child soldiers, from the 1,200 Jews saved by Oskar Schindler, 20 grams, to the 100 kilos which represent the 6 million Holocaust dead. In Australia, a big show, Stanscaf was able to pile up the 833 kilos, which represent 50 million, the lowest estimate of the victims of the Spanish flu. Revived in the UK last January, the show included a small but steadily growing pile of COVID deaths in China. I remember the show as instructive and angering it's particularly good at demonstrating racial, gender and class inequality. But it's also really moving. 
Why? Far from following the BBC's sage advice on individualising empathy, of all the people in all the world, appears to be doing the opposite, converting the rich diversity of humankind to identical grains of rice. But something else happens as you walk round the show. Somehow it challenges you to turn the silent white piles back into people. And while we're bound to be in there somewhere ourselves, what you realise pretty quickly is that most of the piles, from Beatles to billionaires, from child soldiers to the victims of genocide, aren't piles of us at all. Early on in the pandemic, the media started showing pictures and telling the stories of the dead. I remember the day when the front page of the newspaper was a sea of faces. Part of the intention, valid and good, was to remind us that these were people like us, with parents and children, siblings, partners and friends. In that sense, it was an invitation to empathy. But for those like me, who are white, comfortably off, living and working in safety, many of the faces and names told a more particular story. That COVID victims were disproportionately from minority communities, working on the front line of the NHS, or in many cases, both. Last June, the Office for National Statistics reported that black people are three times more likely to die from COVID than white people. In February, the ONS revealed that of the 51,000 people who died from COVID between March and November last year, over 30,000, that's 60%, were disabled. On the 2nd of March, the BBC reported that 95% of the doctors who died from COVID were people of colour. As Green MP Caroline Lucas puts it, we may face the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. But we have been rowing. There are people, kilos upon kilos of them, who are not dead because we took a national decision to put people's lives before the market. That wasn't a foregone conclusion. Remember herd immunity? And it wasn't ever thus. The 1957-8 flu pandemic killed up to 30,000 people in the UK, and little was done to prevent it. God knows the UK COVID death rate has been unforgivably high. Remember the care homes. But God also knows how many more would have died if people had listened to the COVID deniers or the economy firsters or, for much of the duration, the then President of the United States. Even arch-free marketeer President Macron of France called on the world to refocus from the economic to the human aspects of our lives. What has taken the place of the market is the beneficent state, but not just the state. Yes, we banged our saucepans and clapped the NHS heroes. But in February, ICM pollsters calculated that over 12 million adults, that's 200 kilos worth, had volunteered during the pandemic, over a third of them for the first time. Once we get back to the new normal, things, of course, may reset. The public sector pay freeze is a reminder of who paid for the last great fiscal crisis and who's already paying for this one. But the lockdown months send an enduring message that our solidarity isn't only about people like us, but also about people who aren't, which for me includes the hundreds of thousands, the millions, who came here to work in the caring industries and ended up fighting and sometimes dying to keep the rest of us well and safe. This is a time for grieving not just for names, but for numbers. 
of a people we don't know. That was David Edgar's Numbers, Not Names. When I say this year has been marked by loss, I also mean in a much wider sense. There are also so many things we've missed in the past year, ones that we don't have rituals to mourn for. Lost memories we could have built with family and friends, lost aspirations, lost jobs, lost weddings, lost joy, lost love. Sometimes I wonder how we can memorialise these intangible things. How can we hold a great big funeral for every hug we didn't get to give, every milestone ceremony we didn't get to attend, every day of furlough or joblessness that left us without purpose? Maybe we should just organise a huge series of wakes after the pandemic, where we all get to come together, get drunk, not me though, reminisce about what we never got to have or feel or touch last year, and just have a good old cry. But as much as there are things I miss and mourn, like putting my arms around a bereaved friend or the opportunity for romance to blossom... It's young people that I think who've lost the most. Because young people are losing something unique. Their firsts. A first party, first date, first kiss. First time skiving and getting into trouble for it. First time graduating, first hangover. It's all so weird and different now. And the firsts they've gained don't feel like fair replacements. The first time experiencing grief... The first time feeling isolation and loneliness. First time worrying about your job prospects. I do think children, teens and young adults are incredibly hardy and creative and that on the whole they will come out of this with a unique resilience made stronger by it and better for it. But I do wish we could give them back some of the things they've lost. I think COVID is only only the lining. You know, we're going to face a huge mental and a financial breakdown, especially in the areas of mental health. I've seen people come in and they've put on three, four stones. Their mental health has deteriorated so badly. And, you know, the suicide thought rates have gone up and they just feel as if they don't want to live anymore. They feel as if the future doesn't present anything for them anymore, especially with the ages from 15 to 27, you know, people who are at the age of students, they feel that there's nothing for them to work for anymore, nothing for them to look forward to anymore. And that is, I think, a huge, huge worry for us within the NHS. One inspiring young poet, Eddie Doyle, has written and recorded a piece in which she tries to explain to her friend, who's going through grief for the very first time, what that journey is going to feel like. Here's Eddie. What I really want to tell you is that it is going to be okay. But we both know that I am an awful liar. The truth is, mate, everything has changed. Every moment changed, every expected memory changed, and it doesn't go back. Time keeps on going, no matter how hard you will it to pause. I spend my days waiting for a door to move, just so, in the dark, or for a dove to fly past at just the right time. It doesn't. 
So far, the best I've done is a pigeon with all of its toes intact. Maybe it does for some. Fly past with an olive branch, and that's for them to have seen. So I will still wait. But the problem with death is that we cannot know. Knowing and believing is a fine line, but belief is a hope to know, right? You can see it on our faces in those gaps between moments, grasping at something between peace and fear, in facing up to that incomprehensible oblivion. The problem with death is that we cannot know, but we come to know grief indefinitely. It's grotesque when it comes. The shock. When it's as though all that is left is love and time. These things we know. I felt these in my cheekbones at the start, when it still inhabited me. Do you? I felt it in my cheekbones as I tucked up to sleep, bringing the blanket to my nose or sat on my own in a cubicle loo looking at just the right initials carved into the doorframe and thinking, well, would you look at that? When it was still involuntary. It escapes as some weird noise. And if you were acting it out, you'd probably play it as a weep, but which in reality is something closer to a howl or a honk, even. We can't play it like that because it would be funny. It would be comedy. We play it as delicate and softly sad, but it isn't, is it? It's ludicrous. There's nothing worse than loss so harsh that you make noises you couldn't repeat. And I can't speak to what noises you make. Or what part of your face twinges when you stop to think. But I can speak to the love that howls in us. That bears its teeth and spits and roars, unmuzzled, bubbling at the tips of your fingers, the tip of your tongue. And this is love in the year of loss. This is love having to bruise and burn and barge through the waves of grief, that tide that seems so relentless. We keep losing. But we keep loving. We keep persisting. Ticking on beat with time. We have to trust that when the sun rises in just the right place, or when the lad who's football you're going to have to hurl back over the fence looks just like them, <laughs> so you're even more mortified by the idea of embarrassing yourself with a misjudged throw, we have to trust that these moments will one day bring us joy. To trust that not all joy is joyful. What I really want to tell you is that it's going to be okay. We both know that it isn't, but it is going to get lighter. While we sit waiting for the door or the dove, it's life that we're searching for. Grief isn't knowing the pain of death. It's knowing the privilege of life and life in abundance. So hold them. Love and time and life. 
hold them up to the face of oblivion and rage until there's nothing left. That was Eddie Doyle. I, like Eddie, would like to tell you that it's going to be okay. But she's right. We just don't know what happens next, really. All we can do is trust in the journey. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Which takes us to Act 3, where we talk about healing. It's starting to feel like there's some growing optimism that we might soon be through the worst of this crisis. People are getting vaccinated, we've come out of lockdown, more and more restrictions are being lifted. The end might be in sight, we hope. But I keep wondering, and I'm sure you are too, what happens next? It feels like we're only at the foothill of a bigger climb, where after this massive disruption in all our lives, we've got a lot of reckoning ahead of us to try and face what we've been through and make some kind of sense out of it which sounds like a big old collective job, and I don't even know where to start. Luckily, I've got professional help. Dr Erica Borgström is an anthropologist and an expert in death, dying, grief, ritual and healing. If anyone can offer some perspective on how to process the last year, I reckon it's her. I am a medical anthropologist and a lecturer based at The Open University. My research and teaching tends to focus on death, dying, grief and bereavement, uh, with particular interest in end-of-life care in England and how we relate to dying people. In this episode, we've heard from people's personal experiences through the last year across the country and across different faiths and beliefs. And now it would be great to go global and get an anthropological perspective on death and grieving rituals. So if you could, Dr Borgström, just take us on a little trip around the world and land on a a few examples of how different cultures express death and grief. Yeah, so there's great human variation in what people do around death rituals and funerary rituals. And actually, the archaeological evidence suggests that people have been intentionally burying the deceased with items for well over 10,000 years. So it's a long history that we have as humans and and how we relate to the dead. Some of my personal favorites that happen at the moment are like the individualized, hand-carved, bright coffins that happen in Ghana. And they have them on the roadside. And it really makes you realize death is part of life and reflects the individual's personality and has great meaning to them and their family. 
I also find it quite interesting that there's several cultures that will feed the dead to help them on their lives afterwards. So it's a nice reminder that people have different beliefs about what happens after someone has died and, and what they might need for those future lives or next journeys. There's several cultures, particularly in Madagascar and Indonesia, that will rebury the dead after some time. So they might dig up bones, clean them again, wash them, wrap them differently, perhaps even dance with them, celebrate with them, and then bury them again. And it's a nice way of remembering that death isn't a one-off event and that how we relate to the deceased could happen for many, many times afterwards. Some other examples of funerary rituals that happen are, for example, turning the ashes of someone who's been cremated into different objects. In South Korea, they might turn them into beads or pearls. Um, in other places, they'll turn them into like trinkets that can then sit on someone's mantelpiece. All of these rituals seem very intimate. Yeah, very intimate. And part of that intimacy is what helps make that meaning personal and, and makes the ritual powerful for the people. That is truly fascinating. And I, I read somewhere about in Ghana, there are dancing pallbearers to kind of almost celebrate. Is it like a celebration of the dead? Yeah, in Ghana, the, the funerals can be absolutely massive and huge and people will come from miles and miles and, and obituaries will be broadcast on the television and in the newspapers to let people know that this is happening so that they can come. And it is a great big celebration and there's a lot of singing or professional criers even just to mark the grief as well as the celebration of life and and for them a good funeral is what helps mark a good death and in your work which is fascinating you make a distinction between biological death and social death could you elaborate a little bit on what that means yeah so for people who don't study death and dying all the time, often if they see that there's multiple concepts of death, they're a bit confused, right? Because isn't death one thing and don't we all understand it to be the same thing? It's something that happens. It's an event. But actually, research about death and dying shows us that it's much more about a process, and it's not just a biological process or something that happens to the body, but a social process that involves people and how they relate to each other. And social death actually can happen before or after biological death. So, for example, if it's happening before, it's about treating someone as if they already are dead. And there's a lot of literature that's sort of reflected on that in terms of how we might treat people who have dementia or even sometimes how we might treat people who are bereaved in that we avoid social contact with them or we treat them differently in terms of what kind of things we offer them. There's also anthropological literature about social death after biological death, looking at how long we remember people for, what kind of practices do we do in order to keep the memory of them alive, or what kind of, for example, ancestor worship might happen. For those who are familiar with the movie Coco from Disney, that's yeah. an example of social death, when you're seeing them pass away because no one's no longer remembering them. Would you say that there's more of a discomfort with death? maybe in the UK, more of an awkwardness, generally speaking, than elsewhere in the world. I think in the UK we have a societal discourse that we're supposed to be polite and not talk about things that might upset others. But actually in the media there's talks about death almost every single day. A lot of our daily dramas feature death and dying. Increasingly there's a lot of books that are written about grief. So we have this interesting dual relationship with, I think, death and grief in the UK where it intrigues us, but we still feel it's impolite to talk about it in public or even with those close to us because we don't want to offend anyone. Why does ritual matter when it comes to our relationship with death and grief? 
Rituals can help us make sense of things. They're really embedded with meaning, and they can help us transition between one state of being to another. So anthropologists, when they've been theorizing about why humans have rituals, it's all about helping make sense of great life transitions and helping bring order to times that might otherwise feel very disordered. And the key thing in there is linking it to meaning. So taking part in rituals that you don't connect with won't necessarily be as effective as having rituals that you find personal meaning in. So that's what the key is there, is having meaning and intention in the practice that you're doing. And these days we've become more acutely aware of the difference between the private practice of grief and the communal element of it. Um, Because we've been deprived of communal gatherings over the last year and our rituals around death and grief have had to adjust, it feels like grief has sometimes become a very solitary, private and lonely experience. So what sort of impact do you think this change is having on people at an individual level? Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, no charities that help support those who are bereaved are experiencing much higher demand this year and people are expressing that intensity of grief and the loneliness of that this past year. So the question about how it's impacting people is really thinking about how they're feeling disconnected from others as a way of processing their grief and disconnected perhaps from those practices that they would have normally expected to be part of. Because we have that dual challenge of not being able to do what we wanted to do or would expect to do for funeral rituals but also not being able to connect with others in our daily life people are intensified in their loneliness. Dr Borgstrom are there any examples of people reinventing ritual over the past year either here or abroad? Actually there are several research studies looking exactly at that both in the US and in the UK about how people are doing rituals differently in light of COVID restrictions. Some of the examples people have given is sort of the live stream funerals but also what they're doing in those live stream funerals. So for example giving specific instructions that everyone lights a candle at the same time or all share a drink at the same time to sort of toast the dead or that they can pre-send in items that they write down that then get buried with the dead that they might not normally have done. One of the very touching things I've heard of is families sending items around to the others who would have normally attended and these might be items that help them remember the dead or mark the funerary practice that hasn't been able to happen. So it might be a particular scent that would normally be associated with a funerary rite that's not been able to happen that they would have normally smelt and therefore they can then have that in their homes or like one family I heard from sent primroses to everyone and then they all planted that in their gardens and then sent photos of those primroses to each other as a way of sort of marking that they're together even though they felt apart at that time and there's a lot of creativity in in what our rituals can do for us and, and resilience in that creativity as well. It feels like we're on the precipice of a change you know more and more people are getting vaccinated restrictions are lifting we're glimpsing the end of the tunnel And like a lot of people, I wonder what happens when we're on the other side, out of crisis mode. Will there be a reckoning? You know, how do you think all the unresolved trauma from this past year might manifest? Yeah, so there's a lot of hope at the moment, right? And I think we've had hope carrying us through for this past year, which is a great thing. For me, I think it's interesting to think that there's probably not going to be a single moment where we're all transitioned to this new stage, as much as we'd like to hope for that. And therefore, we're going to have to be much more intentional about how we're doing that transition, both individually, but also, you know, in our societies and as communities, and even, you know, as nations, and how we're going to help people process 
what has all gone on, the grief of those who have died, but also the grief of our changed lives, of futures that we had imagined that are no longer there or possible. We might have to think about what kind of rituals will be helpful for us to do that. It's always tricky trying to predict the future, so I'll just give some ideas of the types of things that we might see or we're starting to see glimpses of and they might become bigger. So one of those is the use of art to create big sort of memorials that acknowledge the scale of COVID death and grief that's happened. And I think we'll see acknowledgement that people are doing rituals in their home that might not necessarily be religiously prescribed or culturally prescribed, but sort of individualised rituals that they have created. There's going to be more and more of that sort of use of websites and, and social media the platforms to memorialize people either in a very personal intimate way but also in a very public way so there's been dedicated twitter accounts that have opened up to just document the people who have died and to just share their stories what kind of meaning can we make out of such a big heavy year right that's <laughs> swaying on all of our shoulders i think that's really difficult to say with authority for everyone because actually we're all going to take different meaning from it one way we can start looking at that is what kind of meaning can we take from life and what kind of lives we want to be living individually, collectively, globally, and how we want to go forward with those lives. Death often is about reflecting what life means and how life goes forward and how we want to relate to our ongoing futures and the legacies we might leave behind and also how we want to relate to those who have died. What kind of continuing bonds do we want to keep with those people? How do we want to keep their memories alive in us? And on a national level, how does our new collective experience affect our broader cultural relationship to death? So one thing I've noticed is there is much more discussion about grief in the media. And we're seeing much more nuanced reporting about how people are experiencing grief and that it's not a one-size-fits-all, that it's not necessarily a, a short time period experience, that it can come and go. So I think there's going to be a much more societal discussion about how grief is experienced and how we might support others who are grieving and realizing that we're not necessarily alone, even when it does feel very lonely. But I think on a political level, we're perhaps not quite there yet in terms of how we're going to process that as a nation and what might be needed to help people heal, particularly after this past year. And there's been a lot of sense of injustice in terms of how people have died, in terms of how different funerary restrictions have impacted different groups of people. And without addressing those injustices, we might also not be able to process our grief. One thing that we've seen throughout this pandemic is that Although, you know, we often think about death being something that everyone encounters, actually we've had very unequal deaths during the pandemic, both within the UK, but also globally, in terms of, you know, what populations have been more at risk of catching COVID and having poor outcomes once they do have it. And also in terms of how different communities have been affected by public health restrictions that we've had around funerary practices and how that might impact different rituals differently, you know, and particularly when some cultures will have time-limited practices, you know, having to do something with the body and be very intimate with the body within 24 hours after death and that not being allowed and that being really problematic for people. And I don't think at the moment we've had big societal conversations about those injustices to the extent that's going to enable people to move past. And, and in some of the research on trauma, it's a sense that that could be grief that's not been healed and not been valued or recognised. And I think that recognition is not just on an individual level, but on the societal level. So one of the things I think if we're going forward and how we might resolve our grief from this past year is part of that is going to be having bigger discussions about actually how it's impacted people differently because of certain societal injustices and political decisions. I'm currently working in intensive care in East London. 
I am a foundation year two doctor, so that means it's my second year since graduating medical school. My experience with grief during the pandemic has changed dramatically since starting intensive care. My main take home really is that everyone experiences grief differently. One conclusion that I've come from is that it's really incredible how much we can support life with modern medicine. So we can support your heart by giving medicines that really squeeze every blood vessel in your body so that you're able to maintain your circulation. We have ventilators to support your breathing. We have filters that can replace all of the functions of the kidney, pretty much. And what that means is that dying becomes a very slow process sometimes. You know, someone that appears that they're in the very same place with very little improvement, and then suddenly they die. But in reality, without these modern techniques and without this equipment, they would have died much, much, much earlier. And so it's made it extremely difficult for families who are not seeing their relatives every day, who are not speaking to a doctor face to face, for them to understand that this person is dying. And I think it really delays the grief process and it makes those decisions about continuation of care, even though they've reached a point where it is essentially futile that it would be extending death rather than extending life. It makes that decision so much more difficult and traumatic. I have dealt with families from all sorts of different backgrounds, Muslims, Christians, people with no faith, and they all deal with it very slightly differently. But when I think about the stages of grief, I see a lot of denial, a lot of not understanding that the inevitable is that they will pass. In the midst of the second wave of the pandemic, we were so stretched that usually these conversations are done between a consultant and the patient's relatives. But we're so stretched that actually everyone has had to really take on more of that burden, more of that responsibility. And that's really been quite a steep learning curve and absolutely it's had an impact on staff. Before my father died, he had been ill with dementia for about a year and a half. I think for all of us, it was a bit of a surprise because one day towards the end of 2020, he was literally fine. He was normal. We didn't really notice much of a deterioration. And then he contracted an infection, which meant he had to be taken to hospital. And then he literally overnight just went downhill and ended up dying. So my brother and my sister and I then had to organise a funeral from the UK whilst my mother and obviously uh, my dad were in Nigeria. Thankfully, I had a very, very good friend who runs one of the most prestigious funeral homes back in Nigeria. So I was able to call upon her. I did not even realise how much detail actually goes into organising a funeral. So... The morning my father died, she was able to send her team over to the house. They collected the body. They set up a table with a condolence register. That is huge in Nigeria because after somebody dies, a lot of people will flock to the home and you may find yourself feeding people 
and literally entertaining people for days on end because they all flock in to condole, to sit with you, to mourn with you. And it's nice to be able to focus them on something they can do. So that register, so people can write what they feel. Some people even set up websites so people can go on the website and write prose and prose and prose. I identify as um, British Nigerian. So some of the culture I wasn't aware of until my father died. Now, here I was thinking, well, you know, we're all going to have to wear black, blah, blah, blah. And then something told me to go onto YouTube and research Nigerian funerals. Oh my God, it was an eye opener. It was a different world. It's like a fashion parade for some people. We don't have to wear black. I'm from a particular part of the country where we are very known for our flamboyant style. So we decided on the colors of white and purple. At my dad's funeral, people were breaking down left, right and center. And I literally was thinking, am I being quite cold? Because I, I'm used to like being dignified and not letting yourself go and stuff like that. And somebody was saying to me, actually, in some parts of the country, they actually hire people to literally be weeping and wailing and be rolling on the floor as the coffin is being um, moved on into the burial ground. On the other hand, well, left to me, for example, I've often said if I die, I just want my very simple ceremony, cremation, that's fine. Or if my body is still of use, you can donate my body to science because I used to be a scientist. So I'm very practical like that. Look, grief isn't one thing to all people. There are a thousand different ways to have a relationship with death. Some of them are joyful, some of them are sombre, some of them are just sandwiches and every day. But it feels like we all, collectively and on our own, need to figure out how we're going to deal with all we've lost. What will be the shape of our grief? Will we honour the people who've passed and the things we've lost with silence and sobriety? Or will we celebrate the impact they had on our lives with feasting, music and dancing? Will we process our understanding of dying through faith or spiritualism or art or psychology, biology? And most importantly, how will we do this together? Because remember, you're not alone. Whoever and whatever you've lost this year, however lonely it may feel, we aren't actually alone. The ripples of loss spread far and they connect us together. So let's say goodbye together to everyone and everything we've lost this year. And to you, dear listener, thank you for sticking it out with us through this podcast and thank you for sharing your stories with us. Here with a proper farewell is Maimuna Memon. Farewell to Tarwati At you Mormont Hills And the dear land of Crimond I bid you farewell I'm bound off for Greenland I'm ready to sail In hope to find riches In hunting the whale Farewell to my country
comrades For a while we must part And likewise the dear lass Who first won my heart The cold coast of Greenland My love will not chill And the longer my absence Loving she'll feel. There is no habitation for a man to live there, and the king of that country is a fierce Greenland bear, and there'll be no temptation to tarry long there. With our ship bumper full, we will homeward repair. Farewell to Tarwati, that you Mormoned hill, and the dear land of Crimond, I bid you farewell. We're bound off for Greenland and ready to sail in hopes to find riches in hunting the Part two of that podcast, where we say goodbye to those we have lost and talk about grief and healing, was hosted by Ramona Alley and featured Dr. Erica Borgstrom and contributions from members of the public. Farewell to Tarwathi was arranged and performed by Maimuna Memon. Numbers Not Names was written and performed by David Edgar and directed by Jennifer Baxt. These Things I've Known was written and performed by Eddie Doyle and directed by Jennifer Baxt. The host script was written by Jennifer Baxt and Ramona Alley. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.